episode number 15. Yeah. I'm so excited that we have this many episodes. But I need to ask you all a favor. I put out a leave a review contest for people to leave a review and possibly win a free Elastoblast. There's really no strings attached. Um, unless you're an international listener, then you do have to pay for shipping. But otherwise, it's completely free. All you have to do is follow the instructions by going to the website, www.mindyourbodydmt.com, and go to the section that says leave a review. If you're not sure what an Elastoblast is, just go visit the page and it'll explain all about it. It's a very popular dance movement therapy prop, but can also be used in, in classrooms and in fitness classes like Pilates and yoga. Honestly, nobody has done this yet, so your chances of winning are really high. So please leave a review. It's important for us so that we can get higher rankings on iTunes and so that more people can discover this podcast and ultimately dance movement therapy. Thanks so much in advance for helping out. And please let me know if you have any questions about it because it it can be kind of confusing. So today I talked to Dr. Lori Baudino, who's a clinical psychologist and board certified dance movement therapist. She specializes in treating children with cancer, special needs, and terminal illnesses. She focuses on strengthening family relationships in her private practice by working through the body and movement. In this episode, Lori gives us clear guidance about how to practice whole body parenting and why it's so important for enhancing communication and understanding with children. Even if you're not a parent, this will be helpful if you're in any child care role, whether you're a teacher, therapist, or babysitter, or interested in becoming a caregiver and just want to understand a little more deeply how caregivers and children communicate non-verbally. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Dr. Lori Baudino. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and a board-certified dance movement therapist. And I specialize in working in private practice with children from 0 to 18, specifically um, collaborating with their parents on anything from attachment work um, to trauma, sensory integration work, children within um, with on the autism spectrum, children with depression, um, anxiety, basically everyday challenges that parents come in contact with to support their children to, you know, feel like they're capable and competent, as well as I focus with children um, with cancer and terminal illness within Children's Hospital. Awesome. So today I wanted to focus on embodied parenting, Mm -hmm. kind of talking about concepts of incorporating body awareness and movement awareness into parenting and both parts of that role, both parent and child. Yeah. So for me, um, as a psychologist and a dance movement therapist, um, I, I offered this extra lens within the therapeutic relationship where it's not just about how we talk about issues or we read about issues or learn about them, but really how we embody them. So I commonly say that challenges and illness and disease occur in the body. So what better way than to address this through the body? So um, a big theme that comes up in parenting is about empathy 
and how to get on your child's eye level and how to join them in, in their big feelings. And um, even in education, how parent, how teachers can now look at social emotional awareness and, and understand children. But I want to take it a step further and say that it's not just about being empathetic with our words and our eye contact, but actually in our bodies. So really um, we're understanding as a parent how we're triggered with our children, how this is experienced in our bodies and through our senses, how to understand the nonverbal communication that's constantly being communicated by our children so that we can better understand them and support that connection between whether it's a parent and child or staff, um, teacher, therapist, pediatrician, <laughs> uh, you name it. So it, it's it's just really understanding that, that we can't split the mind and the body. It, it's happening all together. And so we have to understand what happens in our bodies, how we carry our experiences, how we learn with our bodies to then support our children. Great. So I guess we could focus uh, not just on embodied parenting, but embodied caregiving, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely want to dive into some of those topics that you mentioned. But if we could first break it down, like what are the things that caregivers should be aware of in their bodies when interacting with children or not necessarily children, but children and teenagers? Yeah. So I think the first thing that comes up is how to be an observer. So how to witness and be present with your child to just look at what they're doing. So entering a situation, oftentimes parents with good intentions, we come in with like a bag of expectations of what we want our child to do and how to be. And, and most of this may be even fear-based where we want them to be the best they can be. So we come in with these expectations, but we need to step back first and join the child by just observing, being aware of what they look like in terms of movement. So how is the child sitting? How are they moving? What qualities are they using as a mover? Um, and so as a lens of a dance movement therapist, we look at space, you know, are they moving with direct intentionality? Are they moving quickly? Are they moving with sustainment? Are they um, having a lot of weightedness, like heaviness in their body? Are they kind of light and floating around? So these are an extra lens that we don't often get given as a parent or even as a professional, um, unless you are in this field of the mind-body practices. And what that does is it allows parents to be able to gauge how to respond to their child by meeting them where they are. And it's just, it's more than just saying, I'm going to talk the same way. It's really about how does this look in their body? And then it's about making that connection, like how to move with our children. How do we, oftentimes as a child specialist, we look at like, how do you play with your child? Um, and playing can be like, how do you make a connection? How do you move your body in sync with your child? And it looks like a dance almost. You know, you look at how people partner dance and, and there's this back and forth flow that happens. And this can be embodied in a relationship between a parent and child. And when there's a disconnect, we see that actually that movement quality seems like you're moving in opposition to each other. Do you have any examples that you can give of those steps of first observing the movement and then joining them in? Yeah. So, um, you know, if a parent is watching their kid, um, a kid's going over and touching a plant and they immediately go to telling their kid, don't touch that plant. 
Instead, it would be going through the lens of like, let me observe, how is my child moving? Are they moving quickly and about to like rip this plant apart? Or are they moving quite slowly and observing the plant? So as, as simple as that, it's just, if we look and observe our child's movements, we can immediately get an idea of like, what's their intention behind their action. And then we might be able to respond differently and say, oh, I see you're moving towards that plant. What do you, what are you noticing? Or let's be really gentle with the leaves. So we care for our tree or whatever it is versus saying, don't do this, stop touching that. And we immediately go to thinking they're going to like destroy something. So that would just be a, like a very, very basic example. Another one is like getting out the door in the morning. Um, transitions can be really tricky for parents and they can think their child's being non-compliant. Like my child's not listening to me. And it's, it's looking at how are they moving through space so we can feel like, oh, I'm in a rush. I'm moving quickly. My voice is fast as mom and I'm telling them to move, but I'm noticing my child's moving very slowly and lethargically getting to the door. So instead of being frustrated with them, it's like how to match that slowness, maybe in our voices, maybe we slow down our tempo of our voice and we say, like, let's go to the car. You know, like we kind of match that rhythm, but we are still moving to the car mm-hmm. <laughs> or, um, you know, just kind of being playful with timing of how we're interacting. So, the, I mean, the examples are endless, but it's just having this extra lens of just saying, rather than putting a label on my child's being lazy or my child's being difficult or whatever labels we can place on them, it's looking at it in terms of the body and saying, this is just a movement in space. How can I help my child be understood to understand where they're coming from, but also then how to get them on my, to join my dance so we can get to whatever we need to be doing. So there's that back and forth. Mm -hmm. What have you observed is the biggest struggle for parents in trying that out? I think it's very hard to put ourselves on a, we can think intellectually of like, oh, I get why my child's upset. But I think in our bodies, when you are, authentically feeling frustrated or annoyed or you're exhausted or you're burnt out or you name it. Um, it's really hard to join someone else's experience. And so it's, it does take a lot of self care and finding ways to make sure we get to move as a, as the parent, how to, how to get our needs met in our body. So we don't come into it in survival mode where we feel like we're going to fight, flight or freeze, or, you know, just feel very uh, restricted and tense. So it's like kind of how do we handle our own body's needs to then be in our best place for our children? I think that's the biggest challenge. And even me as a parent, I I feel it all the time. (laughs) So how do I get to move my body so that when I enter the situation with my children, I'm ready for whatever they're going to present me with? Do you have any examples of the most common body-based mismatch that you see between parents and children? Um, when you ask me that, I have a couple of examples. One is the kid that's more reserved and they call them like shy, the kid that's hiding out and the parents either trying to kind of get them like, oh, he's shy, come talk, say hi, say hi. And kind of like the parent is big and expressive and active and the child is more withdrawn. And there's opportunities to really join that that observation and just be present with where their child is without labeling it as like you are shy. So that comes up a lot. The other is, you know, when a, when a parent feels possessive or anxious of their child and making sure their child is happy, losing that understanding that the child may be fine and happy. So kind of being more aware of like, rather than being mama bear protective, kind of noticing like, is your child okay? 
uh, maybe the child is smiling or, or tr- exploring something and just that, that disconnect of like, what's the parent's issue and what's the child's issue that that mm. can come up. And then the third thing I can think of, again, I have so many examples, but I think with pain, when I think of like um, serious pain with illness or disease, we tend to think pain needs to be distracted, like go away from it in terms of the body. And we tense up, we, you know, we hold pain with like tightness um, or we try to like avoid it. Like, let's just like not think about it, distraction. And I, I experience a lot of support or a lot of um, benefit um, when I'm working with patients and, and children and, and I help them actually explore their pain and have control over it to kind of really explore what does it feel like, where is it, how is it moving, and not be so scared to really kind of dive into what is it. Um, and oftentimes it it gets unpa- unpacked and we get to see that it's more than just physical pain. It's actually emotional pain or fear or sadness. And then we can have control to shift it and change it. And so clearly when we think of parenting, we want to protect our children and we want to make them feel better. But oftentimes if we, you know, again, I kind of use this word play with, play with the idea of allowing the pain to be what it is and just stay with it you know, not trying to change it so fast can be really effective. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing a theme of two things that the caregiver, um, in order to kind of just be with the the child or the teenager or whoever, they need to be more aware of their own emotions, their own sensations, what's going on in their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And then also allowing that for their children too. Mm-hmm. So it kind of play off of um, the relationship of like, if the parent is not aware, then why would they want their child to be aware if that's such a scary thing for them? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we want to absolutely, we, we can be our best, the best models for our kids. So there's this back and forth that's occurring. Um, I was going to mention that there's this misconception that mindfulness or awareness links to meditation, which links to like sitting still, (laughs) like a stillness has to happen. And as much as I I adore that practice and and I, you know, and I facilitate it in many ways when it's appropriate, it's also to give permission that movement can be awareness and it can be active. And children often like to move through meditations or through experiences and that it actually can be more embodied versus saying that you have to sit still or you can only breathe when you're angry, take a deep breath. That all can, can be a strategy, but it's also that we can mindfully move and explore our feelings and, and be aware. It's not, it doesn't have to mean like stay still. Right. I, I can relate to that in my own work where I work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital Uh, A lot of my patients who are experiencing a lot of anxiety, they think that the only way they can calm down is to be still and to meditate (laughs) with stillness. And then they go through a session, a dance movement therapy session, and they realize, oh, wow, I can move and feel really relaxed and calm through that and after that as well. So right. I, yeah, because it comes through that pattern. You kind of go up and around and and we, our body knows how to recoup. (laughs) So, right. So, yeah, what do you have a specific advice or guidance of how parents can start? I mean, it's, I know it's not just parents, but anybody really, how they can start practicing more awareness of their own bodies and the, their own movements. Um, 
it seems the easiest in terms of like my response from parents, um, what, what they can catch on to is starting just by picking a sensory experience. And so I might just tell them to be aware of sounds. So when they're being triggered, triggers come up a lot in parenting, like those moments where you just feel like you're being activated and you're not your best self, like how to handle those seem to come up a lot, obviously, when you're working with kids. Or, or the child's having a challenge and, um, you know, it might not be related to the parent. It might be the child's own, own challenges. Um, but picking a sensory experience. So, for, for instance, thinking about just if they're in that moment, could they be aware of the sounds in the environment? Picking one sound, two sounds, three sounds, could they hear them? You know, or the sense of sight, what colors do they see? Picking shapes. If they could go into the body, it might be where in your body do you feel like a sense of warmth or coldness? Um, is there a part of your body that feels very tensed up or relaxed? Like just kind of being aware of these sensations. And that can be a starting place to kind of address that these experiences we're having, we don't have to put a label on them in terms of like judging it as an absolute, but we can look at it as like this is a moment in time that I'm having a sensation and it's a body experience. And then I can change it. So it gives us like more control. I guess the second piece to that is taking away, I keep saying these labels, but like when we think of our children as they're being difficult or they're aggressive or they're lazy, these things that come up as a clinician, and then obviously we get into like diagnosis as well. We can look at it in terms of helping parents see it in terms of movement. Like you moved quick and direct towards that child and it could look like a punch, but instead of saying like you punched him, you're aggressive. It's like you moved quick and you moved direct. So now let's move slowly and gently. So it gives a child more permission to have options versus just telling them you are this and that's all you can be. Um, I feel like the movement lens allows for a lot of potential and capability and so much more control and, and options. Right. That answer that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Like the more, options you have that you can translate into movement like being quick and fast isn't aggressive it's just a form of expressing oneself and that right. there's another there's another side to them there's also like all this in between there too so it's not just like bad or good it's not black or white right well and then how do we use it like sometimes it isn't the right space to use it so where can where can we put that that kind of quality and you know, just giving a little bit more room to explore so that we look at children and look, we have this optimism of looking at everything as a means of connection, as a mean of experiencing life. We experience life through movement and it doesn't mean it's it's like a preconceived idea of what that means. Um, what I love so much about dance movement therapy is as Sometimes it can be seen as like a vague or, you know, it can seem wishy-washy because it's not so concrete. But what I what I think what makes it so amazing is the re that the fact that it isn't so concrete allows so much flexibility, that there's so much opportunity for us to look at situations um, with an openness, with seeing that it's all, it can be a positive experience versus like a judgment or. Right. And, it, and, and it's bringing me back to my own personal experience of being a child. And I, like I, I grew up dancing and I would tap dance in the house, not with actual tap shoes on, but I would mimic those movements and move a lot. And uh, my dad kind of had a, a quick temper and would always just kind of be like, you know, stop, you're being too loud. And I, I grew up 
to be more reserved and quiet. I don't know if it's all because of that, but it just felt like those movements, they weren't allowed or they, I would be unlikable if I use those sure. movements a lot. So it's interesting yeah. that, you know, now being a dance movement therapist, I discovered a lot of these movement behaviors that I had to repress as a child and growing up yeah. and realizing, oh, like I really miss that part of myself, you know, and that yeah. it doesn't have to be hidden and it can coexist with my reserved and slowed down and sustained self. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great example. When I think about psychology, neuroscience, when I think of physics, and everything talks about integration. I find it so amazing that this work as a dance movement therapist, everything we do is about integration. And when it's not integration, we have chaos or rigidity. And that looks like something in the body. Illness, like pathologies, it looks like rigidity. You have someone that like is a fixed way and will not change, will not budge. Or chaotic, like a tantrum, like a whirling dervish, like cannot get their self together, disorganized. And it looks like an action. It looks like movement. And then if you have someone that's integrated, there's this flow. <laughs> there's They know when to move quickly and when to move slowly. They know when to be direct, when to be indirect. You kind of know how to utilize all these qualities. Um, and if only, you know, life could be that simple, <laughs> which it's not. But when we look at how to support children and parents, if it, it could be almost broken down to that subtlety of saying like is this look chaotic does it look rigid and how do we get you guys to have this even flow in your interactions in your communication with each other in how you believe in each other so it, it's it's amazing to me as a as a movement piece but it, it goes it seems so much deeper than that it, it relates to all these theories of science yeah when you were talking about judgments and labels before I was thinking about how much of that is passed on from generation to generation. Like how old are those beliefs and those movement Monsters. patterns that are in, in the body getting passed down. So I wonder mm -hmm. if you ever explore that, not necessarily directly, but like how old and habitual are these patterns? Yeah. Well, I, I love, um, you know, looking at the parenting from the inside out kind of that work, um, Dr. Daniel Siegel's work and looking at like, in order to parent, you have to understand your own parenting experiences. Um, and then I take it to that step of looking at like, how is it carried in the body? You know, what happens when you talk about your parents, what happens to your body posture, um, the quality of how you, it's amazing, even in myself, when I am triggered and I'm my worst self as a parent, let's say, I embody my own parents. Like I, I embody the way I felt as a child. So my body responds that way, how my parent looked like it, it's all kind of created in this <laughs> this vessel of mine. Um, and then I show it. And so it's amazing how if you change your posturing, if you change your speed, if you shake out your arms, you know, people say, go in the other room and take a breath. But it's more than that. If you jump up and down, if you do a wiggle dance or whatever you need to do, you get to change that quality and then, you know, enter the situation differently. So whether it's myself or when I work with parents, just understanding how they were parented, like looking back on like what qualities that what that looked like to them can be really, really fascinating to explore. You get less cut up in like all the link, the, the stories and more about like, how do we support this kind of keeping what we like, being able to give permission to get rid of things that we don't, that aren't helping us anymore. As the parent or as the child? As a parent. 
Yeah, as a parent. Mm -hmm. One of my questions that I was thinking about is when people are stuck in words or when parents are kind of stuck in like the the verbal part of the disagreements or uh, the interactions Mm -hmm. with the child. Is it hard? You know, do you find that that happens a lot? I do think that I get a lot of parents, um, you know, that that would think that if their child is not doing what they're told, they're being defiant. And there's this quote, I have to find out who said it, but there's a quote that says, if you tell a child something five times and they don't listen, who's the slow learner? Or it might even say you're the slow learner. (laughs) (laughs) And what's so exciting about that quote is like, it is so true. Like parents will be like, I don't know make your bed, make your bed, make your bed, or, you know, you know, put your food, whatever they're, they're asking, go to sleep, do this. But they say it over and over and over again. And they feel like their child's not listening and they're saying it over and over, but it's like, how do we change our language so that this becomes meaningful to our child and they do the action and action is, is a movement. So like, how do you get with your child and show them that cleaning up is meaningful? How do you show them that that's valuable to them? And I often use semantics of like, rather than saying like, you need help, I say like, how can I join you? Because children don't tend to usually need help unless, unless they do, you know, obviously physical differences or challenges. But in general, let's say your child is capable of doing these things, but they might want you to join them and do it with them. And so we can get out of our language space of repeating ourselves and just say like, how am I joining that so that it happens? Like, what's our goal? Like, how do we get to that, that place? Because, um, yeah, like you're right. You could just stay stuck in the words and the intellect and it doesn't go anywhere. Right. So even tying back to like changing things up in your own body rather than just doing what you normally do with your posture and your body and saying the words over and over again, like even in that interaction with the child, you're changing it up and doing something mm-hmm. different with your body. Yeah which becomes less threatening, which we know then the child's not in fight or flight mode where they feel they, they're, you know, equal and they feel like no one's about to eat them or attack them. <laughs> and then they're more likely to access the, the, you know, upstairs brain or front front part of their brain where they can say, oh, I can re- rationalize and think and plan and I can make a clear decision and help out, which we know they can't if they're in a different place of their brain and they're they're just feeling like they're being yelled at. All right, if they're yeah. too stressed to even if process words, right? Yeah, um, which can happen with the body too if our posture is intimidating. But there's easier, easy ways to look at our body and say, how can I meet them so they feel like they're supported, safe, seen, soothed, secure, you know, so that they want to achieve the goals that we're asking them to. So we were, we've been talking about joining the child's Uh, How do you recommend that a parent sets boundaries or makes rules or guidelines with their children in a way that can still be healthy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that question because I think it's a common misconception that to be empathetic means to not have boundaries. (laughs) Um, And it's totally inaccurate. Boundaries and um, being consistent is so important and having rules and, um, you know, family beliefs or philosophies are really important. And I think that number one is just to be consistent and communicate them. Um, We definitely want to be consistent with our children. So setting priorities, whether you talk to your partner about this as a family unit to say, like, what's important and then being consistent to communicate that to your children. And then above all, though, it's about making it meaningful. 
I truly believe in my experience of kids from working in private practice, working at hospitals to my own children, that children want to learn. They're always learning. Um, and they just want it to be meaningful. So I don't know if this helps as an, ex- as an example, but one of the examples I use is like we oftentimes parents can feel like it's going across the street is dangerous. And so they would feel like you just can't cross the street. It's dangerous. And instead, we might empower them to say, like, the street is not dangerous. It's just that if you cross at the same time as a car is coming. So it's about being meaningful and saying to the kid, like, this is why it's dangerous. Because it doesn't make sense to say a street's dangerous when the kid sees you cross the street, when they see that there's nothing in the street that's dangerous. It doesn't make sense. So then they're more likely to misunderstand that information and make a mistake or test out a theory (laughs) uh, at the wrong time, possibly. So it's about really making things meaningful. So when I think about setting boundaries and structure, I'm thinking about why is that boundary important to me? So we don't climb on a glass table. It's important to me to set that boundary because I know I can teach my kids where they can climb. And then I also can teach them that the weight of their body is heavier than the table. It could break it in its glass, which could then cut them. So everything is just meaningful and they can actually get a sense of it. They can hold on to it. It's not just like a concept in their mind. They can actually explore it and experience it and see what what I mean by testing it with their bodies. They could even test out weight with their body um, and it becomes real. And then they're, they'll follow it. I'm also thinking about, so using the body to set boundaries and I worked in a a therapeutic preschool for about four years. And I still work with children today. And my supervisor at the time, Christina Devereaux, you might know her. um, Yeah, she, I think it was a group supervision meeting. And she gave an example to one of my peers, who was explaining that she was trying to set a boundary with a child. And she was kind of saying like, no, 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 don't do that. And, um, and Christina responded like, well, the tone of your voice is kind of indulgent. And when you set a boundary, your words kind of need to match, needs to match yeah. your tone. Is that something yeah. that comes up to where the parent or the caregiver is saying one thing, but their body and their voice and whatever parts of the body are saying something else? Yeah, I mean, that, that can play in both ways. It can play when a parent's saying like, oh, you're so sad, you want to play more at the park, but the parent's body is sitting there tense and frustrated and angry, and so the child doesn't feel empathized. They feel like, no, mommy's mad at me, and so there's a fight going on. So it's like, how authentic can we be to really show that we are feeling what the kid's feeling, um, if we do believe that, or if we're not feeling it, saying, like, I'm really angry right now, and my body's showing that I'm angry, and it's real, and so that's okay, too. And then I was thinking when you said that about like even bullying or kids meeting kids on the playground, it's really thinking about like, how is their body language giving off a message of, I want to play with you. If a child slouched over on the bench, sitting with their head down, but feeling like no one wants to play with them, they might have to learn that their body's giving off a message that they're not interested in playing. Um, And that's not an easy, you know, it, it takes some practice and experience, but just opening up the chest could possibly allow them to open up that communication to I'm I, now the other kids can see my eyes or, um, you know, if a, someone's making physical contact, you know, are you allowing them to make physical contact to you if you don't like it? Or are you standing up and pushing your hand out and saying, stop, 
Um, so like it has to be embodied. It's just not just saying stop with our words and kind of laughing and being uncomfortable. It's, it's got to be practiced with the body. Yeah, those are great examples and for anybody. These are great tools. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not something that should just be expected of kids. Like we all have to learn these things. Mm-hmm. I think that a common misconception is that when a child's having big feelings, the adult wants the child to make eye contact. Like, look at me when I'm talking to you, you know, that kind of respect request. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult if, if we've all experienced big emotions to make eye contact with someone when we're having this flooding feeling of emotions. But we could look at like our posture or, um, you know, our timing and, and other ways of letting the person know, like, I am listening to you. And when I get myself together, maybe I can then make eye contact, too, so that, you know, communication goes past the eyes and it's the whole body. A lot of our field talks about eyes <laughs> and eyes are very important. Um, they're you know wonderful. But and also we can use our whole body. Yeah, and I wonder if that's even a conversation that a child and a parent can have when they're both calm and just being like, when I'm upset, is it okay if I show you that I'm listening with this body part or um, with a certain movement or if I just kind of sit side by side next to you and not face to face? Right. I see that like um, another common thing that comes up with parenting is like at the end of the day, they want their kid to tell them about their day. What happened at school today? Tell me everything. And the kid's like, nothing, fine, whatever. It doesn't really answer. And I feel like there's a great opportunity to look at the body and, and kind of do like the pass, passing of the torch because the teacher had control for like, what, seven hours. And now the parent's expecting the child to answer their questions. And it's a big cognitive shift. <laughs> but there's a way I've found to access that through the body. So like finding a way to connect. So we do this as a culture, like we shake hands or we give a hug or we give a high five, but seeing like, how can we connect with the child on a nonverbal level, which then promotes the language to come up and then to feel comfortable to then say, Oh, I did this at school. But if we go just into the cognitive, like the headspace of like talking, there's a disconnect that happens. Right. So it becomes this concept you know, I think that when I think about the body and embodying, it's it's this overarching theme that should be explored within any field and really looking at if we want op- optimum health, we have to look at this whole mind-body connection and not miss that piece, not miss this piece about the body. Yeah. Do you find that's hard to communicate to, I don't know how often you work in conjunction with other mental health professionals or on a treatment team, but of course, to me, this is very obvious concept, but what's kind of the response that you get? Yeah, I think it is really challenging. Um, I think it's challenging or I know it's challenging because it means that we have to look at ourselves. In our training as a dance movement therapist, we are constantly told to look at ourselves. So we're pretty good at it. (laughs) We're, we're, you know, constantly looking at ourselves, but many fields don't necessarily do that, nor do they want to. So it's intimidating. You have to be super vulnerable. It's, you know, looking at vulnerability as a way of being brave, not um, weak, you know? Yeah. And it's like a win-win because the more you get to know your body, like, yeah, it's really challenging at first and it, it's hard and probably bringing up things that maybe have been pushed down for a while, but then you get this freedom and this agency over your body and the way that you respond and this insight and control. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be and, as, I mean, that hard forever. It's just a, you know, like a huge right. obstacle at first. 
Yeah, and it, it, it gets the more we practice it, it gets um, you can you can just it gets easier. It get, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like even with clients, when I'm in sessions, I don't always know in that moment. I might not always have all the answers, but if I'm really genuinely there, I can feel it in my body when there's a misunderstanding or there's a moment of like, aha, like this is working. I can like sense it in my body. And if I actually brought that up and it brought it to the room and acknowledged it and said, I'm getting this feeling of like a tension here, or I'm noticing our, all of our bodies are doing this, then we can talk about it and resolve it or see what else is needed. But if I forget all that and I don't look at that and just talk about what we're talking about, you could spend hours talking and talking and talking <laughs> and maybe not even getting to anything. Um, so it's just an, an awesome tool to have um, to bring in to any relationship. Right. And you're bringing everything to the present moment because you could be talking about anything, anything from the past, anything about the future. When you bring it to how do our bodies feel right now talking about this? Or what's the energy in the room right now talking about this, whether it's something from any timeline you're talking about here now, right. which is all all related. Yeah, I would I would like to um, this is not the nicest word. I, I got to think of another word, but like infiltrate other fields. So I feel like it's not about having an ego or being territorial. It's about spreading this out or integrating it, maybe integrating is the right word, integrating it into how we look at experiences. You know, when I, I, I do a a seminar called mindful teaching for the moving child and helping educators see how we have to look at the nonverbal communication that we give up, give off as educators and what the children are coming into the classroom with. It's not, enough just to look at like how we teach academics or the words we use because there's so much nonverbal going on that we can miss so many cues and and interactions that we could support or knowing before the teacher gets burnt out or you know if a child's really struggling with something and that needs to play a huge part or when I'm at the hospital and I see doctors come in and how they interact with the patient and not looking at how the child's body is reacting they're just looking for the words that they're saying and they might be missing the, ch- the child pulling backwards, like pulling away from the interaction or, you know, seeking them out for more input or, or that the noise and that maybe the sensory experience might be overloading them or flooding them, or they need more, you know, more or less of something that it might not just be non-compliance. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's their body feeling regulated and calm and in needing that support. So I, I just, know that this can be added to so many different levels of working with people. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think there's there's been a lot of great information shared here in this in our discussion that many people can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if it fits, but I just wanted to tell you if it does. I um, published my first book. Nice. Uh, and so it's called Super Flyers, and it's a parent guidebook for airplane travel with children. And it's this idea of taking parenting to new heights and um, how these strategies, when you use them in an isolated environment like the plane, it will give you support for on the ground as well, because parenting is this endless journey, just like an airplane travel. Um, and in the book, it, it does give a lot of strategies and, and playful anecdotes about always, it all encompasses the body as well. So it, 
I, I can't write without talking about the body piece. So just another resource for parents that I'm awesome. excited to share. That's great. I'm glad that you and people like you are trying to get the word out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Working hard at it. We'll get there someday. Okay. thanks everyone for listening and don't forget to visit my website to find out how to win a free elastoblast see you next time